This week when I saw the photo, my heart almost stopped. It was a photograph of a man, maybe late 30s, in a city in Ukraine, holding the hand of his 13-year-old son who had died two hours earlier in a Russian missile strike. He was kneeling on the ground, on the sidewalk, his son covered in a red tarp, his son's blue sleeve and hand popping out as that father knelt beside him and held with both hands the hand of his son that he would never get to hold again. You can imagine returning home to see your son's empty sneakers on the floor knowing that they will never again be used. His unmade bed wondering, do I make the bed or do I leave it that way knowing it'll never be slept in again. It's the worst nightmare a parent can have of losing your child. We're going to look at a passage in the gospel where Jesus encounters a woman who has experienced just that. And we're going to learn something about the heart of Jesus and about the power of Jesus. This is the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And they were all filled with awe, and they praised God, saying, A great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. What do we know about this woman? We know that she was a widow. It says she was a widow. And what that meant is that she had lost her, her son and given her, her husband, and given that she had only one son, uh, who was now a young man, probably about 13 or 14, that's what that would have meant, um, probably meant that she had lost her husband a long time ago, and she had been on her own raising this one child, her only, her only son, and that there was no one else to take care of her except that this son one day would, would be able to take care of her, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, we read. That meant she had had a hope. As a widow, she had no husband to take care of her, to protect her, to provide for her in her, in her old age, but, but with a son... She had a hope, 
a hope that, that he would grow up and she would then live with him when he marries and she would be there with the grandchildren helping them as well and that she would have a place to belong and she would have a family to take care of her and she would not be vulnerable and she would not be put out on the streets and she would not have to do shameful things in order to try to survive. But it was a fragile hope with no backup plan. How many of you know what it's like when your whole life seems to hang on one thing, one thing that's fragile, one thing that could be taken from you at any moment, and it would radically change your life, when your very future hangs on it, knowing that you could face such suffering. We know she had one son and that she had just lost her one son. As Jesus approached the town gate, we read, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. She had lost her only leverage in this life. She would experience both the personal pain of any parent who's just lost their child, and this would have just happened this day. This, This Her son was alive earlier that day. It was the Jewish practice to always bury someone on the very day that they died. And so this morning, he was there, and now he is gone. And it's raw emotion that she would have been feeling, but also looking at a future that had been taken from her, knowing that that, that her whole future is now in question. Daryl Bach writes, the emotion in the verse carries deep pathos. The town shares in the grief as they gather with her. Such mourning was seen as an act of love by one's neighbors and was especially significant where a widow was involved. So what we know about this woman is that she had no one to protect her, no husband, no son, In the present, and no one to take care of her in her old age, she had lost everyone and everything. She had few options in life, none of them very good, and she was feeling the raw emotion of a mother who's just lost her only son. And this left her weeping, and weeping on the very frayed margins of society. That's what we learn about this woman. What do we learn about the heart of Jesus We read here that his heart went out to her. Luke says, when the Lord, that is Jesus, saw her, his heart went out to her. The language here means to be moved in the inward parts, to be moved with pity, to be moved by compassion. This is the heart of of compassion and of empathy, of, of sharing in her sufferings. It's the heart of Jesus in the face of her tears. We see his heart went out to her, and this we should expect. We should expect, he says to her, don't cry. That seems a little weird to us. Of course she's going to cry. But more accurately, he's saying stop crying in Greek because Jesus' comfort is going to include more than the comfort that others can give her. And he'll offer her more than words because he has a heart of justice and mercy, a heart of justice and mercy that is characteristic of the God of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Jesus says, whatever did, you know, think of how Jesus, in one sense, he's, he's obeying his own instruction. He says, whatever you do to the least of these, you did to me. 
and he's seeing the least of these, and he's loving the least of these. But Jesus says that whatever you do for the least of your brothers or sisters, least of your siblings in Christ, you did for me, for Jesus. Uh, This isn't meant to romanticize the poverty of the poor. Poverty is painful and humiliating. Nor is it meant to overlook the reality that people who are poor and helpless can be just as manipulative and deceptive and deceitful as the rest of us. Uh, But Jesus identifies the face of the poor as his own face. He wants us to change how we look at that guy on the street corner asking for money and look at him and see Jesus. Whatever you did for them, he says, you did for me. Whatever you did not do for them, you did not do for me. So complete is Christ's own identification with the poor, with the marginalized, with the unloved, with the wounded, with the grieving. Later in the New Testament, St. James calls special attention to widows, orphans, and the poor. These were the same protected classes in the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament. The the God of the Bible is a God of of justice and mercy, where people should get what what is owed them, that, 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 that wealth or power or privilege should not balance the scales any differently. Remember how God identifies himself with the marginalized. In Deuteronomy 10, uh, the Lord is the one who defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. That's how God self-identifies, um, because that's what he does. That's what he's known for. That's, he's known for his justice for the poor and the weak and the vulnerable. Um, it's fascinating how often God introduces himself as just that kind of God. You know, it's, it's, it's like when, when people ask me to how I want to be introduced. I say, well, introduce me as Greg Johnson, lead pastor of Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, because in my public goings about, that's what I'm primarily known for. And yet, you see the significance that Scripture introduces God as a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. That's who I am, the Lord is saying in Psalm 68. It's his identity. It's one of the main things he does in the world. He identifies with the weak, the sick, the poor, the marginalized, the powerless. He takes up their cause. He has the tenderest love and closest involvement with the socially weak. Of course Jesus is going to see this woman weeping and be moved. Of course his heart is going to go out to her because he is this same Lord whose heart went out to them in the Old Testament. He identifies to wrong the poor is to wrong God himself. Psalm 109, he stands at the right hand of the poor person to save him from those who judge his soul. Think of how people judge the poor. Don't say you don't. Car drives up next to you, it's missing a bumper, it's got probably your plates on the back of it, you know, it's literally taped together in places. And and don't tell me that a thought of judgment doesn't cross your mind. Because we're trained to do that. It's our classism as Americans. And yet, God is the one who is at that person's right hand to save him from us who judge him. Psalm 69, the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners or in jail. Psalm 140, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. It's the Sri Lankan theologian Vinoshramachandra 
who says, among Israel's neighbors, as indeed in the ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods was channeled through the power of certain males. The priests, the kings, and the warriors embodied divine power. Opposition to them was tantamount to rebellion against the gods. But here in Israel's rival vision, it is the orphan, the widow, and the stranger with whom Yahweh takes his stand. His power is exercised in history for their empowerment. One author says, from ancient times, the God of the Bible stood out from the gods of all other religions as the God who is on the side of the powerless and justice for the poor. You say, Greg, I get it, but when I give, I want to give to the worthy poor. But did God give to you because you were worthy of grace? Or did he not give you grace when you were unworthy? You say, Greg, if I give, they might not be grateful. How often does God give you grace knowing that you won't be grateful? You say, Greg, they might misuse my mercy and take advantage of it. And yet God gives you mercy knowing that you will take advantage of it. Every time you sin, saying, I can ask forgiveness later. C.S., a friend of C.S. Lewis told the story of, of when he and, and C.S. Lewis were walking across campus one afternoon and a, a beggar came up and asked them for spare change. And C.S. Lewis opened up his wallet and he took out a wad of bills. It was all of his cash and handed it to the man. And the man was so thankful and, and thanked him profusely and then walked away. And C.S. Lewis's friend said, you know he's going to spend that on beer. And Lewis said, well, that's what I was going to spend it on, you know. But Lewis did this because he understood God's heart of justice and mercy, the heart of Jesus. Of course, Jesus is going to see this woman, and his heart is going to go out for her because she is suffering, and she is weeping, and she has lost everything. He, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. The heart of Jesus is drawn like a magnet to those who are suffering. He is drawn, his heart is, is drawn to you in your tears, in your suffering, in your pain. The things going on in your marriages, the things you're facing with your parents, with your kids, in your workplace, the things that you see inside of yourself that are causing you grief, the things that have been done to you, he sees you. He sees your tears, and he is near to you in your tears. He's also drawn to all humanity in its suffering, to, to the, the family in, in southern Russia whose, whose home is being carried away by floods, to that poor man in, 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 in cradling the hand of his 13-year-old son in Ukraine, to the famine victim in, in Ethiopia, to the, 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 the elderly man in a hospital in, in, in Buenos Aires, watching as his wife of 65 years is wheeled out on a gurney for the last time. This is a suffering in which Jesus chose to share. Jesus had already suffered by the time he encounters this woman. He had already suffered the humiliation of becoming incarnate in a human body. The, the humiliation of being a part of this world of suffering, of having his diaper changed, of, of, of being teased and mistreated and having religious leaders already trying to kill him. You know, even before the cross, Jesus had entered into our suffering. Only in Jesus do we see a God who chooses to suffer 
with us in solidarity. Dorothy Sayers said it this way, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He has himself gone through the whole human experience, she writes, from the, 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 the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty. He died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile to do so. When the Lord saw this woman, his heart went out to her. It's the heart of Jesus. And yet we see something not only of the heart of Jesus for the poor, for the victimized, for the suffering, for us in our tears, but we also see it's not a weak compassion, but a strong one, because here we see something about the power of Jesus. We see that he is more than a prophet. The townsfolk were amazed. Jesus just touched this guy, and he came back to life, and they say, that they were all filled with awe, and they praised God, and they said, a great prophet has appeared among us. You know, that, that's, that means, I mean, I don't want to put down any of the prophets, but they're not thinking this is Malachi or Habakkuk. They're thinking this is Elijah or Elisha, the truly great prophets, the greatest of the prophets, the ones who, who did incredible miracles and spoke the word of God and raised the dead as proof of their authority to do so from God himself. That's what they're thinking. They recognized him, you know, and, and, and then they said, God has come to help his people. And of course, what they were probably thinking is that God is so present in the ministry of Jesus, just like Elijah, just like Elisha. God's power is so present, it's clear that God is with this man, Jesus. But their words ironically suggest more than that they at that point could have understood. They say God has come to help his people, by which they mean a messenger of God, bearing God's power and God's gifts and God's miraculous abilities. But their words take on a different meaning this side of Christ's exaltation, because Jesus had authority to override death in an even more full way. We read about it here. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. He said, stop crying. And then he went up and he touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up, began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jesus has authority to override death. He has authority to reverse it. We spend our entire lives trying to prevent death, you know, and yet the human mortality rate is still 100%. You know, Jesus arrives, though, and he says, I have power over this. I can override this. Death doesn't get the final word. I get the final word. And did you notice how Jesus identified with the deceased? He went up and touched the dead body. We read it here and it says he touched the coffin. But they didn't use coffins in first century Palestine. It was a beer. It was a wooden plank. And the boy's body would have been wrapped in, in, in cloth and, and would have been carried on a plank. And Jesus went up and touched this kid. And, and according to Jewish law, that should have made Jesus unclean. 
ceremonially before God and before the community because the uncleanness of a dead body would have come into Jesus and made him unclean. But instead, what happens is just the opposite. Jesus' cleanness goes and floods this young man's body. And then Jesus speaks to him. And he says, Soy lego. He calls on the corpse. I say to you, he calls on a dead body and tells a dead body to get up and the dead body obeys and the boy's soul comes back in. His body is resurrected. The dead man sat up and began talking and then Jesus gave him back to his mom, reversing death and reversing her loss. Friends, if Jesus has the power to raise the dead, then this changes everything. Jesus' conquest of death didn't end with that son of a widow in first century Palestine. This miracle points us forward to Jesus' own resurrection when he defeated at death and hell itself, when he then became that, that, that first fruit from which we too will spring to new life. It points us even to the resurrection at the end of history when Jesus said, you will see the renewal of all things, when heaven and earth will be renewed, the general resurrection to come, when the cosmos itself will be transformed and the dead will rise. You know, what's, what's the trajectory of your life? I mean, you started out really little. You came out of the womb. You wore some diapers, you filled some diapers, you filled more diapers, you filled more diapers, you filled more diapers, you filled, more diapers, you filled, you filled some pull-ups. You gained some skills, some words, some language, some crawling, some cruising, some walking, some first day of school, then eventually maybe you went to college, maybe you get married, maybe you have children, maybe you have grandchildren. Somewhere, I don't know where, but at some point it happens. You crest the hill, and from that point on, your hair's getting thinner, your hair's getting grayer, various body parts start to, to hurt and have to be, you know, replaced. And, and even getting up out of your pew after church, you vocalize it. Just listen to me. Because you can't get up without vocalizing anymore. You know, eventually, you know, your body systems start to, to shut down. And next thing you know, you're wearing diapers again, and then you're dead. That's the trajectory. But if Jesus has authority to override death. If Jesus himself died and came back to life and said he was just the first fruits and everybody who believes in me is going to come back to life as well, then that means, friends, that this is just prelude. We are not even in chapter one yet of the story that God has for you if you are united to Jesus Christ by faith. It means the best is yet to come. Now, granted, if there is no God, if this is just make-believe story about a guy who got, you know, did some nice stuff in the first century and, and had stories that were way overblown about him, if that's what this is and there's no God and there's no resurrection, then, then you know, a hundred billion years from now, the stars will have all gone out and there will be no humanity, there will be no human race, no one, there will be no one left to know that any of us, that humanity itself had ever existed, which means that basically everything we do is meaningless and absurd because we have no ultimate significance. But if Jesus was who he said he was, and he has the power to do what he showed he has the power to do, then that means the story's going to continue. That means that the resurrection is coming, the reversal of all that is evil and wrong and broken. Years ago, um, I remember 
sitting in a hospital room with a young couple who had lost a child in the eighth month of pregnancy and had delivered the child. And uh, mom sat there laying in bed, dad sat on the edge of the bed, and I cradled their child, their son. And there was so little that I could do. You know, I couldn't even baptize the child because the child was already deceased with the Lord. All I could do is pray, read a little bit from the Bible, and, you know, consecrate the child with oil in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it was quiet, and it was minimal, and we sat there. And that husband told me afterwards that there had been very few times in his life that he had ever felt close to God. But at that moment, in those tears, he felt the nearness of God in his love and compassion to a degree that he had never felt before. Because God was there in the weeping, in the tears, and because of what Jesus is going to do, because of what he did then and is going to do in the coming age, their son is going to rise. Their son is, is growing up in heaven and, and one day will rise physically from death. That little boy is going to run across the pavement and leap into his mama's arms. Jesus was dead and he came back alive forever and that means the best is yet to come. In the face of suffering, in the face of tears, in the face of, of the worst day of your life, we see the heart of Jesus that goes out to you with compassion and love. The heart of Jesus that particularly goes out to those who are weeping, those who are victimized, those who are hurt, those who are sad. We see the power of Jesus in the coming age to make all things new. In the early morning hours of May 21st, 2019, the Earth trembled in its orbit, setting off gravitational instruments on opposite sides of the planet. Researchers scrambled to make sense of the massive vibrations. It was the largest cosmic bang ever observed to that point. Scientists soon identified the cause, the cosmic wave had been triggered by a spinning black hole, a hundred times the mass of the sun, crashing into another black hole 60 times the size of the sun. And astronomers believe the crash had taken place between four and seven billion years ago, long before the earth was formed, but the wave had taken that long to reach us. The event announced in the physical review letters is by far the biggest ever detected at that point. In a fraction of a second, the merging of black holes of, of our own sun uh, released enough, uh, roughly eight times more energy than is contained within our own sun's atoms. It released this power in the form of gravitational waves, and that amount of energy is the equivalent to setting off more than a million billion atomic bombs every second for 14 billion years. It shook the fabric of space itself. Earth experienced a planet quake. In the weeks following this 
massive gravitational tremor through space, scientists observed a stunning flare of light reaching us from the same region of space. It was impossibly bright. The brightness of astronomical objects typically has an upper limit, which is known as the the Eddington luminosity. Things don't get brighter than that in the heavens. One study claimed the black hole event had a luminosity 100,000 times that normal maximum brightness. Scientists are still debating how to understand the event, and my PhD is in historical theology, so take that for what it is. But nothing escapes from a black hole. I mean, a black hole can swallow a planet. A black hole can swallow a star. A black hole can swallow up a solar system eventually. Its its gravitational pull is so massive that nothing escapes it. Once pulled within its event horizon, there is no escape. Nothing that enters into the event horizon of a black hole has any hope of ever escaping. Light cannot escape. Information cannot escape. Everything that enters is gone forever. It's like the sign that Dante pictured over the gates of hell. Abandon hope, all ye that enter here. And that's what death is. Death eats life like a black hole eats matter. No one has crossed over death's event horizon and then been able to come back and be seen again. The grave never tires of its victims. Billions of souls have passed into the great unknown. It's a hungry black hole of death that consumes us all. And yet, in 2019, light that had been trapped for billions of years escaped from a black hole. Why? Because a larger black hole crashed into it, releasing that which had been trapped forever in darkness. The mass of the larger black hole counteracted the gravitational pull of the smaller one, setting free all its captives. And what if God, in his wisdom, hurled an even more massive gravitational force across the event horizon of death? What if God himself went in to the black hole of death, the larger mass, breaking apart the smaller one and releasing all that had been held captive? An eruption of information, an eruption of life, bursting out for an immeasurable blaze of light and life, escaping from the vortex of death itself. What if the cosmic Christ is himself the one who tramples over death by his death, the one who alone entered death and came back out on the other side holding the keys saying, I can let you out by hurling himself into that black hole of death. God the Son unleashed the quantum forces that brought about the death of death in the death of Jesus Christ. It's what theologians of another era called the harrowing of hell. The God-man Jesus enters the grave to set captives free. Death couldn't hold him, for he was the more infinite mass. And when he returned alive forever, he came with the promise that you who follow him too shall rise from death. It shall not keep its hold on you. You will be clothed in immortality and have eternal life. Because Jesus has power to overrule death. He has triumphed over it. He's burst that event horizon in a flare so brilliant, so bright, it was for all the cosmos to see. Jesus, our champion, our victor, our cosmic hero, has achieved victory over death itself, and he did this because his heart goes out to those who weep. 
to those who are in sorrow, to those who are at the very edges of society. His heart goes out in the face of our pain and our tears. It is a Jesus whose heart of justice and compassion sees a helpless, grieving widow and says, no more. Jesus, who has the last word over death. Let's pray.